0: As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him.
1: Before I start timing, this is not part of my official sermon stuff. Two things, it's a shame Richard's not here to preach on this when Jesus says the phrase, to be sure. Um, (laughs) I was a bit gutted for him. Uh, And also, when I've been prepping this the last couple of weeks, I've had in my head a hymn that I've texted a few people to see if they knew, and no one seems to know it. So, the hymn, I saw a new vision of Jesus. Does anyone, yeah, one person, I thought you might, Beth. Is that it? Oh, that's Devo. Great words, terrible tune. Um, Well worth reading later on. Um, So, yeah, do keep Mark open in front of you. We're going to dip into uh, this as we go through it. And currently in Mark, we're at the very central heart of Mark's entire gospel Um, this is the central heart of what he's trying to tell us about Jesus Mark 8 and 9 are the real turning points in the whole of Mark's gospel and they're really the central point of what the first half has all been showing us so in the first half Mark and Jesus have been trying to show us again and again and again who Jesus really is something that Peter back in chapter 8 finally seems to understand and get He finally seems to do it when he announces that Jesus is the Messiah, meaning that he's the king that God promised all the way back in the Old Testament that would restore all things and make everything good again. And since Jesus has been preaching since Mark 1 that the kingdom of God is near and Peter seems to identify Jesus as the king, well, that's good news, right? Because a kingdom needs a king. And if Jesus is it, that's good. But this section of Mark is also the time when Jesus has begun to teach about what he came to do. And we've seen that he's been teaching the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And that bit the disciples don't get. That, that doesn't seem to get into their heads. They don't seem to understand what's going on there. Um, but Jesus needs them and us to hear that that's what's going to happen because, as we saw last week, he needs us to see that his pattern is the only pattern. If we want to follow him as his disciples, we need to be prepared to suffer. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus teaches that the life of a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is a life of pain, sadness, and suffering. We need to die to ourselves if we're going to live for him. And that's going to involve stuff like rejection, persecution, painful self-denial when no one else seems to be doing it, giving up stuff that we enjoy, clashing with our families, friends, and even ourselves from time to time. The life of a disciple, Jesus is warning us, is going to be hard. So how are we meant to keep going? The journey's so hard, how are we going to keep going? Jesus is clear that it's going to be hard, so I think it's okay for us to ask that question, how on earth do we keep going through it? We can all feel a bit like this lady here, uh, Florence Chadwick. Now, I've told her story before, but it was a summer psalm, and it was in 2018, so I'm hoping most people have forgotten it by then. So she died in 1995, but she's a bit of a hero of mine. She's an incredible woman. She was a a, a world-leading, record-breaking, long-distance swimmer. Um, She was the first woman to swim the English Channel back and forth, and she swam the return leg quicker than anyone had ever swum it to that point. And she wanted to be, in 1952, she wanted to be the first woman to swim the Catalina Channel. Now, the Catalina Channel is a 26-mile stretch of the Pacific Ocean and Florence Chadwick wanted to be the first woman to swim it. So they did all the organization, she trained for it, she prepped for it. But on the day of the swim, it was incredibly cold, and it was incredibly foggy. You can see like a a meter or two in front of you. But she wanted to do it anyway, so she jumped into the Pacific, and she started swimming. She had a few rowboats with her to shoot away sharks that were going to come along. Um, and to make sure she was was okay, but she was doing it on her own. Swimming, 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 hour after hour after hour. After 16 hours of swimming, she just couldn't do it anymore. No idea where she's going, fog so thick, absolutely shattered. So she called out to the boat and said, pull me in, I give up. And so they did, they pulled her in and she learned she was only a mile away from the shore. Ah, all that work, all that effort but it was just too hard. She said at the press conference later, all I could think about, all I could see was fog. I think if I could have just seen the shore, I would have made it. And isn't that what the Christian life can feel like sometimes? The life of a disciple can feel like that, tiring, foggy, and quite frankly, too hard. And it can be really tempting to just give up, be easier to just give up. So how do we keep going? How are we ever going to make it if it's that hard and it's that easy to give up? Well, that's what Jesus answers in these verses we're looking at in Mark today. Jesus wants us to give us at least one answer to that question. He wants to encourage any of us here who's his disciple to keep going, even though and even when it is really Really difficult, but as you may have spotted, as you read through this, there's a fair bit of confusing stuff that goes on. This is not like your straightforward narrative story. All right, okay, I get that. Move on. So we're going to walk through it a chunk at a time to try and understand a little bit about what's going on. And because it's me, I need little headings to help break it up. But the headings you don't need to remember them. They're just there to help me as like a road map. And it all starts in verse one with a confusing prediction. So verse 1, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So Jesus says that some of the 12 men stood in front of him will not die before they see that God's kingdom has come in power. But what does it mean that God's kingdom has come in power? What does that look like? What is Jesus talking about? Now theologians have discussed this for centuries, fallen out about this different strong views. You may have a strong view I don't think it's Mark's main point, but I'm fairly convinced that Jesus here is talking about the disciples seeing the kingdom of God coming with power as they see the death and resurrection that he's just been talking about. So Jesus encourages them to keep going because they will see his resurrection and his kingdom begin, therefore, for themselves. So I think of this verse a bit like something that I've encountered over the last couple of years. I'm a big fan of the PlayStation game, The Last of Us. Any other fans in the room? I don't know. And A few years ago, they announced they were going to make a TV show of The Last of Us game, and that got people like me quite excited about that. But that was a few years away. From them announcing it to them doing it, it was about two and a half years. And the way that HBO grew and maintained our excitement as they waited for the show was a thing they did very early on called a teaser trailer. Now, a teaser trailer If if the main trailer for a show is like a little preview of what's going to happen, a teaser trailer is like a little hint of a taste of a preview of what is going to happen. So it's even smaller than the real trailer. It's a little final mini glimpse of what you're excited about. It's like a mini taste. And verse 1, if you like, is a bit like a teaser trailer for the resurrection. Verse 1 is like a teaser trailer to the disciples for Jesus' resurrection. My resurrection glory is coming, he says, and some of you are going to see it. And that's what a little teaser trade he gives to keep them going. That's kind of what I'm convinced he's doing in verse 1. And then we move on to see a startling transformation in verses 2 to 3. And in these verses, Jesus takes his three closest friends from the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John, for a six-day trip up a high mountain. Now, there's loads of stuff in this chapter that is a direct link and a direct jump back to the Old Testament. And this term, a high mountain, is one of those things. High mountains in the Old Testament are where really important things happen. Loads of important things happen up high mountains. If you read through the Old Testament, try and spot where high mountains come. But for example, it's where Noah's Ark lands on a high mountain. It's where God provides a sacrificial ram for Abraham. Um, A high mountain is where Elijah has his incredible victory over the prophets of Baal. But most significantly for this passage, a high mountain is where God comes down to speak to his people from after the exodus after they've left slavery in Egypt, and then he gives the law to his people from a high mountain. And so a high mountain would mean high expectations for Mark's original readers, especially when paired with this idea of six days. Because in the Old Testament, in Exodus 24, six days is how long it takes Moses to walk up the high mountain before God speaks to him. So six days and a high mountain would remind the disciples and Mark's original readers of Exodus 24, where God speaks. And so expectations for Mark's original readers would be super high for what's about to happen. And they're not disappointed, are they? Verse 2, there he was transfigured before them. Now, if you're like me, you're probably not. My mind automatically jumps to Harry Potter because there are transfiguration lessons in Harry Potter. They get a wand and turn one thing into something else. That's not what this is. There's no wands happening here. This is not a magic spell. Instead, Jesus just changes. Not completely changes. He still remains him, but his outward appearance changes. Verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So this change of Jesus is so complete that it affects even his clothes, and I can just imagine the conversation between Mark and Peter when Peter was describing this moment. Yeah, and then he's got everything just turned white. What, like white, like something bleached? No, even whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And Mark going, oh, I'll write that down. And in this moment, Jesus' real beauty, his real purity, his complete glory shines through in a way that they haven't so far in his life. We sing in one of the Christmas carols, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see." Well, here, that veil is just peeled back a little bit, and the godness of Jesus shines out. And then we get a significant meeting, because Peter, James, and John suddenly realize that they're not alone with Jesus, verse 4, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now, we're not told how the disciples recognise Elijah and Moses. Maybe they had name badges. Maybe they were like in FIFA, if you used to play that, where they have the name bars above the heads when the players are running around. We're not told. We just know that they do recognize them. They're really there. And that is significant as well, because it's another Old Testament thing. So both Elijah and Moses are massive characters from Israel's history. But there's only one place in the Old Testament where they're both mentioned together. There's only one place, and that is in the last words of the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6. There they are on the screen. We don't need to read them. We can summarize them. Here, God is talking about the day of the Lord, the day when he will once and for all judge all of creation. And he tells his people before that day happens to remember what Moses has taught them, before saying that before that day happens, the prophet Elijah will also come back, and hopefully turn the hearts of people to repentance. So, seeing these two legends talking with Jesus here would have reminded the disciples and Mark's original readers of Elijah and Moses' jobs of preparing the way before the Messiah comes to do what only he is going to do. And Mark also uh, describes Moses and Elijah as talking with Jesus, meaning that they're having a meeting with him so they can hear what he has to say to them. They're listening to what Jesus has got to teach them about everything. Jesus is also their king. They've come to hear what he has to say. This is further evidence that the whole of the Old Testament was all waiting for Jesus himself. Jesus is who the whole of the Old Testament is pointing forwards to. And it seems that this is all a bit much for Peter. Good old Peter. I mean, James and John probably as well, but seeing all this and maybe piecing together some of this is just a bit much. Like Jesus really is the Messiah that Peter's just said he was in chapter eight. He is the king to rule the kingdom of God that Jesus has been teaching them all about. They get the incredible sign that Jesus refuses to give the Pharisees back in chapter eight. And so Peter being Peter gives a simple suggestion. Not knowing what to say, Our Bible says, Peter says something anyway. I love Peter. But it's very easy to read that and go, oh, stupid idiot. Uh, Or maybe it is for me. But what he says isn't as daft as we might think it is. Uh, See, back in Exodus 24 again, those six days, they end up at a high mountain with God telling Moses specifically how to build the tent, the tabernacle, that God is going to live in among his people on earth. So when Peter says, let's build three shelters, or tabernacles, what Peter's doing is he's putting the clues together of what's going on with Exodus 24, and he's working out that maybe if God was after a place to live among his people in Exodus 24, well, maybe he wants a place to live again now. And if that was a tent then, well, maybe a tent now is the right thing. Maybe we get Elijah and Moses thrown in as well. But what Peter hasn't understood is that God's new home on earth is not going to be a tent. Right now, for Peter, it's a person. It's Jesus himself. He is God himself in human flesh come to live on earth. God has become flesh and dwelt among us. And so all of this leads to a heavenly declaration in verses 7 to 8. And in verse 7, almost as if to kind of shut Peter up before he says anything else stupid, A cloud appears and covers them. Now, even that would have been terrifying. This isn't fog like with Florence Chadwick. This is fear-inducing, terrifying for the three disciples. Because when a cloud like this comes down in the Old Testament, that's God himself appearing. And anybody who came near that cloud, or even in Exodus who came near the mountain the cloud was on, doesn't end well for them unless they've gone through the right, appropriate rituals and cleaning. They get burnt up. They get destroyed. So when this cloud comes down on the mountains, I imagine these disciples are terrified. Terrified out of their wits. They're about to be burned up. Except they're not burnt up, are they? Instead, they're spoken to. And even that is a bit unusual, because... God doesn't say what I think I'd say if I was God. Like with all of the things that God could have told the disciples at this point, all the things he could have told them to go and do, all of the sins he could have called them to repent of, of all the disobedience they could die to, of all the miracles they should go down from the mountain and go and perform. God doesn't say any of that, does he? Instead, God says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, we've had God speaking from heaven, previously in Mark's gospel, at Jesus' baptism. There, God speaks, it seems, to Jesus predominantly. God directs his love and affection towards Jesus. But here, God speaks from heaven about Jesus to the disciples. These blind and deaf disciples get to see and hear the glory of who Jesus really is, directly from God himself. And they're told what to do with that information, There is a very clear application, isn't there, in this sermon from God? Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. If we want to be disciples of Jesus, we need to listen to Jesus first and foremost. What he says must be louder than anything else we listen to. Listen to Jesus. And then it's over. Verse 8 everything gone. Just the four of them left. The mountain top isn't a mountain stop, and they have to come back down. Jesus still has a mission to complete. Staying on the mountain isn't going to lead to his death and resurrection. They have to come back down, and as they come back down the mountain, Jesus gives them a surprising command. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, Jesus has told quite a few people not to speak about what's happened to them so far in Mark. This is the ninth time in Mark that Jesus tells people not to speak about what's just happened. It's the ninth time they're told to keep quiet. But it's also the last time that Jesus says it. And it's also the only time Jesus says it with a time limit on it. Stay quiet until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. But maybe, predictably, these disciples still don't seem to get it. Still, even after hearing God, from a cloud, say, listen to Jesus, the next thing Jesus says, they don't listen to. When Jesus says, the Son of Man must rise from the dead, they just don't get it. They can't understand what Jesus means by it. Why is Jesus still, oh, I've just gone massively zooming. Um, why is Jesus still talking about rising from the dead? In order to rise from the dead, you have to die first. And God's king isn't going to die. That's what we've been taught all of our lives. So what is Jesus talking about here? And it is almost laughable, isn't it? Like Jesus has just said it clearly. Peter's been told off for saying that can't be right. He's told his disciples that that pattern of dying and rising again is the way they're to live. And then God the Father from a cloud has told the disciples to listen to what Jesus says, and yet they still don't get it. Which to me gives a fair bit of proof to the truth of the resurrection itself. The idea of Jesus rising from the dead is madness, it's not logical. It isn't normal. This isn't something that anyone expected to happen. Even Jesus' closest friends and most devoted followers didn't expect it. And yet, just a few years after this, they're all willing to suffer, and most of them even die, for telling people that it really did happen. It really is a stupid thing to base your entire life and die for, if it didn't happen. The only reason you would base your life... And be willing to die for something as crazy as this is if it really did happen. If Jesus really did die and rise again from the dead, like he said he would. But these three aren't there yet. Like the blind man in the middle of his healing back in chapter eight, they can see more than they used to, but it's not clear, it's a bit blurry. They don't understand. that's good news isn't it that's great news that they don't understand they and we don't need to understand everything before we can follow Jesus we just have to follow him they don't understand but they're with Jesus and their and our discipleship doesn't depend on our knowledge and understanding our discipleship does not depend on how much we know and how much we understand It depends on following Jesus, wherever he leads, whether we understand it or not. But wonderfully, we can still use our brains and think about stuff and try and work things out. And that's what these disciples are doing as they go down. So as they try and work it all out, they ask Jesus a leading question. There you go. They asked him, verse 11, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? as they try and work out and piece together everything, just something's really troubling them. Jesus keeps talking about dying, but that's not what they've been taught is going to happen. They've been taught by the teachers of the law who've taken those verses from Malachi 4 and other places that we saw earlier and taught them that before the Messiah comes, Elijah's going to come and make everywhere smooth and smooth everything out. There's going to be righteousness and peace and harmony and repentance. And then the Messiah's just going to come in power so what they're asking here is, or what they're hinting at with this question is, are you sure you've got this right, Jesus? You keep talking about your death and suffering. If you're the Messiah, that's not what we've been taught the Messiah does. First of all, Elijah comes, then the Messiah comes, and it's all triumph and goodness. And again, look at how patient Jesus is with these people. Despite the fact of all they've just heard, they start trying to correct Jesus with this question. and Jesus doesn't lose it, does he? <laughs> he's so gentle and he's so patient and he tries to help them understand. He's patient and he's kind and that's good news if you're anything like the disciples. And instead, Jesus just gently corrects them. Yes, he says, Elijah does have to come. That bit, you've been taught correctly. Elijah comes first, but that's not all the Old Testament teaches about what has to happen. See, the Old Testament also says something else has to happen before that final day of the Lord. And Jesus leads them to it with the question, why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected? What he's saying is, yes, Elijah has to come, but so does the suffering son of man. Along with Elijah has to be the suffering son of man, a man of sorrows who has to die. Jesus is again pointing out that the way of the cross, the way they don't understand, is the way that the Old Testament has always been pointing to. This cross, death, and resurrection. This isn't just Jesus' pessimistic invention. Well, I think they're going to kill me, actually. This isn't what Jesus is doing. This has always been God's plan throughout the entirety of history. And he's told it to his people for centuries. And, Jesus adds, to encourage his disciples, I think, Elijah already has come. He's already come, and he suffered. Like Mark has made it clear that John the Baptist is the Elijah that everyone's been waiting for. The same home, the same clothing, the same food, the same sort of message. And look what happened to him, Jesus says. He was rejected, he was imprisoned, and then he was beheaded. And if people did all that to the person pointing to the Messiah, well, they're going to do that and much worse to the Messiah himself. What Jesus is saying is suffering is the way of a disciple. It's the way of the Savior, and it's the way that we demonstrate the truth of the eternal life that Jesus has won for us. And then this section ends. And we're going to see what happens next, next week. But it feels quite an abrupt ending for our verses. Maybe you wish we were moving on to read a bit more. But it's really helpful to stay here because all of this particularly would have been a massive encouragement to Mark's original readers. They would be reading this while Nero was emperor of Rome probably. And to do some googling to see how Nero treated Christians. He hunted them down. He covered them in wax and used them as living human candles. He did awful stuff to Christians. And this continues to encourage Christians all around the world who face suffering and persecution and death every day today for following Jesus. There's an organization called Open Doors who do a lot of research into the persecuted church around the world. And according to Open Doors, one in seven Christians worldwide are persecuted today. One in seven. In Africa, that rises to one in five. In Asia, that rises to two in five. Just last year, they estimate 5,621 Christians were killed just for being Christians. It's easy to forget that when it's not that hard to follow Jesus in the UK. Following Jesus puts us in the firing line and puts us under attack whether we get that overt persecution or just generally in life, we're under attack. As we started our time thinking about following Jesus is really hard. It hurts. It's painful. It's going to involve cost. But Jesus' teaching here encourages us that suffering is not a sign that we've been abandoned by God or that we've made mistakes, but it is a sign of friendship with and unity with the son of man who must suffer much and be rejected. Our suffering today and now is a painful reminder of our beautiful unity with the Messiah King who welcomes us into his kingdom through his suffering. And that's all well and good. It's still hard, isn't it? And giving up is still tempting. Compromise feels easier. Just because Jesus knows our pain doesn't make our pain any less painful. So how do we keep going? We still haven't answered that question. How are we going to make sure we keep going? What are we going to do to keep going through all the pain? But that's why Mark gives us the transfiguration account in the middle of all this teaching about dying to yourself. Because if verse 1 is the teaser trailer, the transfiguration is the full trailer of the resurrection of Jesus. The transfiguration is a brief sneak peek of the permanent glory that Jesus is going to have after he's died and gone to heaven and risen again. When his full godness will no longer be veiled by humanity, but shown clearly through it. And we give him the transfiguration to remind us of that. Jesus tells us, remember that. Truth. Remember that what you've seen in me is what's coming for you. Keep looking at that and keep swimming. Two months after Florence Chadwick swam her failed swim, she had another go. This time, it wasn't any less cold. It was just as foggy. There were still sharks, but she made it. And when they asked her afterwards what made the difference, she said this. This time, The entire time, I kept in my mind an image of the shore. And in the transfiguration, Jesus gives every single one of us here a little image of the shore. What we see here is what we're promised if we're his disciples. One day, whenever whenever that may be, however long away that might be for us, if we're one of his disciples, we will close our eyes in death and open them to see Jesus like this only better more glorious than this and we'll be transformed too we won't be stood around going what do we do we'll know exactly what to do because Jesus will tell us he'll say well done good and faithful servant come and share in your master's happiness and it will be worth it the apostle Paul says that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us When we get there, we'll look back on everything we've lost out on for following Jesus, every pleasure we've denied ourselves in order to listen to him, every word of abuse or sneering or mocking or rejection that we've faced because we're his disciples, every tear we've cried in every valley God's led us through, every beating and torture we might endure as we die to ourselves to follow him, everything we've painfully given up in order to be a disciple of Jesus, all of it, and we'll say, It was worth it. Oh, it was worth it. More than worth it. And the transfiguration is just a teaser trailer of that. Given to us to keep swimming, to help us keep in our mind an image of the shore. That's particularly helpful in Mark, because actually in Mark's gospel, you don't get to see the risen Lord Jesus. That's why Mark gives us it in the middle. If you're struggling this morning, when we struggle in the future. This passage gives us two things to help us keep swimming. Firstly, it tells us really clearly, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. He really is the Messiah. Listen to him more than any other voice, even your own voices. Listen to him through his word and in prayer. Listen to To him. And secondly, keep in your mind an image of the shore. Don't forget where our eternal home really is. This is not our home. Our home is with Jesus forever in eternal glory and intimacy and joy that will never end. And it's worth giving up on stuff here to win that. So this passage shouts at us to keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Disney had it right. The shore is just around the corner. It's just through the fog. So keep swimming. You can't see it yet, but it's so close and it is more than worth it. That's why we come together like this on Sunday mornings when we could do any number of other things. We come together to remind ourselves to listen to him and to encourage each other to just keep swimming because the shore is just around the corner. That's why we're part of home groups to do that in a more intimate way. That's why we need each other to keep ourselves listening to him and reminding each other of what we forget so easily is that the shore is just over there. If you're not a Christian yet here this morning, this is something that can be yours too. This certain hope, this joy set before us to join Jesus's kingdom is an offer that he gives to anyone and everyone, no matter who they are. We would love to chat with you about that, if you'd like to chat about that. Because if your hope and your confidence is in anything other than Jesus, it's not really a hope you can rely on. And it's a misplaced confidence. Only Jesus. And for those of us who are struggling, wondering how to keep swimming, how to keep fighting sin, how to keep dying to ourselves, let's keep listening to him. Let's keep in our mind an image Of the shore. And the beautiful thing is, Jesus has already swum the race. He's already won that prize for us. And he promises to help us keep swimming as we listen to him and keep our eyes fixed on him.